attention I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Nick Ellis, an award-winning creative, respected strategic thinker, and pre-watershed sex toy advert pioneer. Nick is creative partner and co-founder of Halo, a Design Week UK top 100 independent brand agency based in Bristol. After a failed career as a rock star, Nick has over 20 years experience working on projects for clients including Jack Daniels, BT, Live Nation, Ticketmaster and Diageo. Nick says, brands need a purpose. They need to make products people want. They don't need to change the world. Often they just need to pay their taxes. Welcome to the show, Nick. Yay. Hiya. Right, our quick fires, Nick. Uh, surf or skate? Uh, surf. Jammy Dodgers or custard cream? Oh, God, that's a difficult one. I'm going to say jammy Dodgers. Are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But it's, I, I think it's the, what I like about uh, jammy Dodgers is uh, the thoughtful heart in the middle. Paul Bailey or Paul Hollywood? <laughs> I do like it when Paul, uh, when Paul Bailey shakes my hand if I've said something intelligent. So Paul, Paul Bailey. Oh dear. Right, Bristol one for you here. Thecla or Motion? Oh, good, good question. I'm going to have to say Thecla because it's old school. Three more. Right, Wow or How or Now? Uh, I actually prefer the Wow, obviously, as a creative. Iron Man or Spider-Man? Oh, fuck off. And you, do you know what? I wondered whether you would mention this. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to say Iron Man, and, I, and I'm going to say Iron Man because I know it annoys you. Iron yeah. Man. Uh, fucking ruin the whole thing yeah man. iron man brilliant last one pearl jam or foo fighters uh pearl jam i think that's easy i mean foo fighters yeah brilliant fun and everything but i think a little bit tory these days uh pearl jam is still wicked um although uh, as uh, as the agency of Ticketmaster, i should say foo fighters because foo fighters haven't uh, had a hissy fit about price of tickets uh so um just for political purposes i'm going to say foo fighters Oh, that's how weak you are. Yeah, 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 totally. Live the brand. <laughs> uh, mate, thank you so much for joining us. We, as you know, we like to talk about how careers begin because they are, they're so rarely linear. Um, and yours involves a brief, albeit I imagine fun, rock star-esque career. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, rock star is uh, exaggerating it. Um, basically, I went to art college and uh, while I was at art college, uh, formed a band, and I thought that actually the band was probably going to be more successful than the career in art. So left college and went on tour, and uh, and then had a series of um, failed musical experiences with various bands for a few years, and then basically, I mean, honestly, it was like we had. I had. I was really good at the sort of the, the hanging out rock star bit. I was quite good at jumping around on stage. 
I was not so good at the time that you needed to spend lavishing tracks in the studio. Um, and uh, what I preferred to do was do drugs rather than songwriting. And that became quite apparent in any of the output that we created uh, across <laughs> all of the band. And so uh, what happened was I came off tour and with nothing and nothing to do. And I basically got a job as a, a telesales rep at the local newspaper, and uh, which is the Bath Chronicle. So I ended up, I did that for a bit, but uh, I was really bad. I was not good at telesales. Um, I was just, I found it quite difficult. There was no face-to-face and, uh, and there was sort of, I often thought that I was selling bullshit. But luckily, a friend of mine was working in the production department and a job, job came up and, uh, and I went to join the art department. It was all paced up at the time. So it was all uh, doing it by hand, literally building the newspaper by hand. Um, and, uh, but Macs had come in. They'd started to do, had a Mac department. And uh, so uh, I joined the Mac department and they taught me how to use Quark and freehand. That's how old I am. And I learned Quark and freehand. And then I saw a job advertised working at Future Publishing and uh, in their ad department. So I went to join them as, uh, as a designer. And I spent a few years, really enjoyable years at Future Publishing, um, working for Guitarist and Total Guitar magazine. And I set up a DJ magazine called IDJ. And that was just glorious, just sort of proper, I mean, really hectic, hard work because you're on deadline every three weeks, really intense experience. And then I kind of got a job at uh, Mason Zimbler, who were a big technology advertising agency owned by Mark Mason and Simon Zimbler. And uh, I went to join them as a senior designer. And it's kind of, that's where I really properly got into Adland. Um, rather than just being into design and art direction. And it was kind of, uh, it was an interesting one because it was a bit of a baptism of fire when you come from uh, publishing. You're very much more on a treadmill, um, I think, than you are in ad agencies. Um, And although uh, Mason Zimber was pretty intense, we had some really big clients like people like Microsoft. But but I always felt that there there was capacity to think, there was capacity to really get to the heart of an idea there. And I think that's mainly because Mark Mason and, and Simon um, really believed in protecting the time that it takes to create really great work. And there I worked for a creative director called John Havel, who was from New York. And uh, it's just it's still to this day, um, he's one of the most important uh, people I've worked with in terms of crafting an idea and how to, uh, how to use design to really bring things to life in, a, in an imaginative and original way. And from there... And basically, the, the, I got made redundant from there. And, and anyone who uh, works in agencies will know that that's pretty much how your career at an agency seems to end. Either you jump ship to earn more money or you get made redundant. But I did jump ship. I went to work at a really small boutique agency called Buffalo. Um, and we were working on BT and the Forestry Commission and just doing really fine identity work. And then I got uh, an offer to join The House, who are a brilliant agency, and at the time had Jack Daniels and, uh, and Penfold's Wine, actually. And I worked with a fantastic man called uh, Stephen Fuller, who was actually the creative director. He's a co-founder. But what he really taught me was the, the sort of the very idea around what brand can be and what brand can mean and the potential for brand. And his, the, 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 just the way that he thinks sort of creates these universe, that this universe for a brand to exist in. Um, is thoroughly fascinating. And he's a very kind, gentle man. 
Um, if anyone has the chance to uh, talk to him about brand and, and actually what brand purpose really means, um, I think Stephen is, uh, is the man to go to. But yeah, I kind of bounced around a lot after that, did a lot of freelance work. And then one day had an epiphany that actually, and I think I said this on Twitter yesterday, I realized that freelancing uh, and small agency life, they're, they're different sides of the same coin. So you might as well, you can bounce around as a freelancer trying to work at other agencies or you can uh, you know, try and get your own clients. But if you're trying to get your own clients, set up, a, set up an agency and actually try to build something. It doesn't have to be big. And uh, certainly Halo is not a big agency um, by any stretch of the imagination. But it was like, well, part of the joy is doing design. Part of the joy is creating wonderful work. Uh, part of the joy is kind of you know, really helping clients. But the big thing, actually, maybe the satisfying thing is to build a business which employs really talented people to do really lovely, exciting things. And, and maybe that's where the real reward will be. Um, and so me and, uh, and uh, three friends, my business partner who still remains, and a couple of other guys that we started it with, um, set up Halo um, above a physiotherapist's in uh, Clifton. And, that, and then the rest is history, I guess, is what you'd say. Although I suppose in this story, what would really happen is we'd start off in a, uh, in a, above, a small, small little office above physiotherapists in Bristol, and then you'd fast forward to now, and I'd, uh, we'd have like uh, multiple offices in New York and, and uh, you know, uh, Sydney and Hong Kong. But we don't. And we still have a fairly small office uh, just in a different part of Bristol. Um, and that's it. I haven't really, haven't really branched out into the international uh, globe buggering agency that I was hoping that we would have created. But we have created something. And that's all that matters. There's still there's still time for any for anyone who's not familiar with the geography that is Bristol. Starting an agency in Clifton is a bit like starting an agency in Kensington. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so can, can can you have found somewhere cheaper? Uh, well, no. So what at the time it was just because a friend of ours who actually owned a hairdresser very near there. Um, this this old office had been used above the physiotherapist was actually used as an old storage room. For, for an adjoining office. So it was really shit and it was really small and, uh, and it only had one window. So we, but we thought, um, like, you, like you say, we thought, well, let's have, let's have a shit office, but in a really uh, posh address because that will make us sound, that would be cool. And so we did that and, uh, and, it, and it did work actually. Being Clifton-based was, uh, sounded really great. And then actually we stayed that way for a, a long time because we, we ended up moving down Park Street, which is a really famous street in Bristol. Um, for those who are not from the city of dreams, um, but uh, the bottom of Park Street, uh, on a on a uh, just off it called Unity Street, and it was right next door to uh, a nightclub called the Tube, which a friend friend of ours owned, and uh, so it was a little underground bar. It's now a speakeasy, um, and so that was it. So we moved down there, and we had like this spiral staircase. And do you know what we did um, when we got the office? And it has this spiral staircase. We had these two floors, one small office downstairs. And then you work up this spiral staircase and there was room for two more desks, right? And we had that. And because we thought, well, we'll, we'll just, we're, we're so agency, we put a putting green on the, on the mezzanine on the top floor. And I genuinely, we never used it once. We, we, just, we, we never used it once. But when clients would come over, they'd go, aha, look at you and your putting green. Do you use that? And I bet you use that a lot. And we would say things like, oh, yeah, yeah, whenever we're, you know, brainstorming. Oh, yeah, that's what we do. But it wasn't true. We just put it in and then immediately got bored of it. 
because it's the most nonsense thing you can possibly have in an office. It's stupid. It's nearly as stupid as I always think this. So you, if you go ever get the joy, and it is a joy, if you go to Ticketmaster in Angel, and they are all amazing, really nice people. And, and when I first went there, they've got a slide from the reception that goes down to their basement. And their basement's just got loads of wicked uh, pinball machines and old video arcades and stuff. It's really good. But it's got a slide. And, uh, and I knew there was a slide there. And I was so excited about going down the slide. And uh, after we'd had our meeting, I, did, I said, look, is it cool if I go down the slide? And our client was like, the client was like, you can if you want. It's not, it's not really all that, though, to be honest. And I, but anyway, so I went down it. And she, she was absolutely right. It was just a slide. It turns out it was just a slide. And uh, what happened is you went down the slide and you ended up in the basement and that was it. That, that was it. And she, was, and she was like, no one ever does that anymore. We, we, everyone does it once and then just goes, oh, fuck that. And, uh, and that's it. It's the most underused slide ever. And that was, that, that's what happens. That's agency, isn't it, though? Just loads of nonsense. We've got a, um, in Halo now, um, we have a, uh, what I call, I call the womb room um, because I, 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 I was reading I was reading a, a, an L Decor uh, magazine and it talked about a womb room at home, which is like a meditation room where it's, uh, you know, you, you, it's, you shut off all sensory, it's sensory deprivation pod, basically. And, I, and we had space at our, at our new studio, just a little tiny space, which I basically had turned into what can only be described now as just a bedroom, a bedroom where, which has blackout blinds in it. And it was meant to be that we could just, you could go in there and uh, get away from all of the you know, the music and the talking and the phone calls. Get away from there and just shut down for ten minutes. And uh, it's just uh, it, it. No one ever uses it. No one. No one's ever been in it because because well, two reasons. No one wants to go to bed in the middle of the day, do they? That's weird. And no one's going to go and have a meeting in there because it, that would be like. Do you remember <laughs> the big breakfast when uh, she where Paula Yates used to interview people on a bed, which is always awkward. That's even worse if you're with a work colleague. Just, you know, you're not, you don't want to lie on a bed and talk. That's nonsense. And, and every day, I, it, it's really near my desk. And every day I walk past it and every day there's a little bit of me which is ashamed of trying to be so agency that I thought that a womb, a womb room. The other thing is I call it a womb room and nobody in, our, in, nobody <laughs> in the whole of Halo will call it that. They call it the snug. And I go, do you mean the womb room? They're like, no, no, we mean the snug, Nick. You're the only one who says womb room. They call it Nick's creepy room behind They do. Room. No, that's what they do. They, they say, oh, do you remember when Nick, do you remember when Nick had a bedroom put in? What's wrong with him? What is wrong? That's why no one invites me out. Yeah, or to the creepy room. Yeah, no, it's, it's terrible. There you go. Yeah, I think all agencies have that, don't they? It's the, the idea of the slide is so much better than the slide. I think ours is a table, football table, never gets used. Oh, okay. We had one of those. We had one of those. And because uh, I thought, oh, that'd be good because I've seen Friends. It always looks fun. And, uh, and it's shit. It's because no one, no, th- this is an interesting fact. Nobody's good at table football. No one knows how to do it properly. Sometimes you see it on films where people like can spin it and, and, and do really fancy footwork with them. But on the whole, no one knows how to do that. At least no one that I've ever played, including myself. Um, so actually, the, the answer, I think, is, ping, is a ping pong table. I think that's, the, that's everyone can have a go at that. Um, but I think it would just collect dust. It would just be somewhere where we put coats, which is what happens to those things. No one needs it. It's a great history you've shared. Without, without meaning to 
incriminate you. Yeah. Can I quickly ask whereabouts on the drug use scale your band was if we go from Cliff Cliff Richard to Pete Doherty? I mean, we'd be definitely be Pete Doherty <laughs> um, range, definitely. Good. Yeah, it's yeah. good to know. Yeah. Well, that all sounds amazing, and and I think what's what I particularly enjoyed about that is that you have a fairly similar variety of inputs in your early days, starting in that publishing print layout space. I think that's really important. I also think that's very noticeable when you work with other creatives, whether they have that or not. And then you said you went to Buffalo, which was a bit more brand identity, and then obviously worked with Stephen. Was there anything in that kind of journey without wanting to sound too wanky that actually prepared you for running an agency? Uh, no, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know as well as I do, you know as well as I do that nothing really prepares you to do that. No, I, I would say what you do is you go, because the cost to entry is minimal, right? You can start an agency from your bedroom, no one would know. And a lot of people do, and it's very successful, I think. I mean, look at Attic, they were pretty good. But yeah, no, no, I don't think anything did. I, it, it, what the biggest surprise for me was that um, a design business or a, you know a branding business as I have is absolutely the same as every other business. You you still have to pay corporation tax. You still have to have pension contributions. Um, you still have to negotiate rents. You have to have indemnity insurance. Um, you have all of this shit, which has absolutely nothing. Uh, to do with you uh, until you start an agency and then um, and all you really want to do is create the work I said that in, in inverted commas because I know we talk about that is a wanky term yeah but it's going to be the work but I did want to do really lovely work for people and no one prepared me for the fact that there was a whole load of paperwork which just needed to be done and luckily now um, I, I don't have to because we have brilliant team who do a lot of that stuff you know so dealing I mean my business partner does all of the uh, heavy lifting in terms of finance and um, rent negotiations etc um, but I, you know in the early days we, we were doing it all I mean every single thing we were having to sort out um, and uh, and no one explains that to you and I had to read loads of basics on how to run a business you know, just you just have to learn what's what's the correct thing. What's the what's the right time to file your accounts? And I know you know people are going, oh, get an accountant. We, but when you first start, you've got to find an accountant. And the people that you can tend to afford are you know like tiny and just starting out themselves. To be honest, we were all finding our feet. And now it's I mean it's obviously really different now. Thankfully, we have a firm which looks after us. But. Honestly, the, the, no one prepares you for the fact that you are, yes, you're running an agency, but you're just running a business and you have to do all of these things by the letter of the law. And these are the right things to do. And this is how you need to look after staff. And this is what good HR looks like. Um, it's not enough just to be kind. Um, you have to have more than that. Um, and no one explains that to you. Uh, and quite, you know, it, it, that I think was the biggest shock to the system. I don't know how you found it, but I mean, to me, that's always been the biggest thing. It's like, oh, bollocks, I've got to do proper work. Yeah, no, you're, you're bang on. You're... It's still annoying, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like, when, you know, when they do, um, you know, when the, so uh, the Chancellor went, oh, I'm going I'm to put up corporation tax. And I'm like, oh, fuck, fuck. Not, uh, partly I've got to do maths uh, and work out what that really going to mean. And then you've got to look at all of how that might affect you and how that's going to affect the investment that you may have earmarked and what's that going to do uh, to the shape of the business. And I have to sit in meetings um, where I'm prepared for and have thought about 
uh, you know, these sort of ideas. And, you know, that, yeah, and even now, so even now I would say that's the one thing that I don't feel, I, I, I feel like I'm not an expert in at all. Um, and I'm always trying to learn, always trying to uh, get a handle on stuff. Um, because, yeah, the, the business of running a business, that's the difficult bit. You end, you end up learning a bit about a hell of a lot. And actually, relative to a lot of people, that means you, you know a lot about a lot, I think. There's a few things I want to tuck into. I think briefing is a good area to start. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about People brief. have different opinions on what makes a good brief. And to, be, to show our hand... I've lost count how many times we've tried to work up the perfect brief template to use with clients and internally, because I think context dictates quite a lot of that. But what are your thoughts on on briefing? Have you got a a, a robust, solid template? Ah, so I have. I, I, well, there's a few. I reckon some of my views might be controversial, but um, so easily I can answer really easily. One of the first we tend to use the get to buy style brief. Uh, we've I've been using get to buy for. I, well, probably as long as Halo's been around, so at least 15 years, because it's really fucking simple, um, but it involves an awful lot of thought to get it that simple. And I think that, uh, but I think it's really important because Get to Buy gives you lots of scope um, and it kind of shows you a strong direction, but it also doesn't, it doesn't act as a straight jacket. I think... And I, this is the this is the bit that uh, some people will definitely disagree with, right? So I think that you can't write a perfect creative brief at all. In fact, I would argue that creative briefs pretty much are always much of a muchness. You know, there, there's some which are awful, and there's some which are excellent. Uh, got a nice lot of detail in them, but on the whole, it's not the actual written brief which matters at all. Uh, it's how it's briefed in. And it's who briefs it in. I think that the delivery, the, the, the actual briefing of the creative brief, the way that someone delivers it, and the conversation which is allowed to run around that briefing is way more valuable than what is written down on the creative brief. I, I kind of used to say, and I, and I still stick to this, is that designers are lots of creatives. If, if the work is chucked back at you from client or from your uh, you know, client services team, if the work is sort of, no, this isn't really working out, what creatives tend to do is go, I, the creative brief wasn't right. It wasn't quite good enough. I don't think we've really gotten into, into, into the nub of what that is. I don't think it really helps. You need to flesh this out or do this or do that. And it's kind of like, fuck off. You, you, you probably didn't write the, you didn't ask the right question. So uh, if you had questions, uh, the time to ask them is at the briefing stage. And um, that's a really good time to ask questions for people to go, I don't actually know the answer to that. I'm going to go away and find out or let's get the client on a call or whatever. But really, I don't think uh, you can blame the creative brief for a creative failure. I think creative failure um, is not down to a poor briefing at all. On the whole, I don't think it should be. I think that the problem is that people tend to think of creative briefs as being a document um, that, that's, that, that's meant to tick all those boxes. But of course, why would it be? It can't possibly be those things. I, I think that we just laud the creative brief so much and we talk about it endlessly so much is because actually studios tend to use a shit creative brief as a, a flak jacket. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to hide behind a sort of creative failure, which, or sort of, um, not failure is probably a, a really strong word, but when you haven't delivered uh, the best or the best possible answer, 
And I think that it's really easy to say, creative brief wasn't good enough. It's like it's your responsibility to help shape a brilliant creative brief. And mostly, it doesn't have to be fucking written down. You just need to have the basics written down and you need to have someone who really understands this problem so that you can really discuss what that answer might look like. But you've got to get it really clear in your heads. And it's not, keep on going back to this perfect idea of a great creative brief. It's just, it's just nonsense. We, we can't spend all the time going, yeah, this is the craft of writing the perfect brief. It just can't be done. I don't think that was anywhere near as controversial as I hoped. Oh, okay. No, that's probably, well, yeah, that's a shame. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll think about another way of making it more controversial. <laughs> I, t- I think I said this once. I um, went to a Glug talk. I did a talk at Glug, um, which is like a sort of a big creative meetup. And I talked about uh, this entire subject, talked about how creative briefs, um, you know, are on the whole fucking shit. And the reason they're shit is because the people write them, but they don't actually understand them properly and they don't sell them in properly. And they don't sort of, you know, create these great conversations. And, uh, and I got an absolute kicking afterwards at the bar with people talking about, yes, you can, and here's, here's why, and being a the written word and the articulation into the creative brief is the most vital part of the creative process. And, blah, 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 blah. and I just didn't agree with it. The thing is, I think I think you made a really good point at the start of um, when you talked about your own system and approach to briefing. I think you said something along the lines of it involves an awful lot of thought. And I, and I think that's the thing. I think that's the consistency, whichever template you might use or whatever information you're trying to elicit from the client and what the actual real problem is and crucially, what's the objective. I think that's the thing. I, uh, I'm sure the size of the brief is inversely proportional to the quality of the brief in as much as it's, it's so easy to hide behind pages and pages of information. That in itself suggests the person doing the brief or assembling the brief hasn't given it the thought required to make it simple. Oh, no, no. And I do agree with that. I think that, uh, again, I think, um, I mean, the reason we like get to buy is for that reason. It, it, it demands acuity of thought. But it's really easy once you've written a get to buy brief. If you've written it, you can you can quickly tell whether it's wrong or not. It's because it, it's so short and succinct. It, 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 you're, if you're going, I've got to take this to the creative department, and I don't think it actually says it well enough. Um, adding more words isn't going to help that. But if you're, you know, it, it does. It really forces you to think it through. But I do think that a lot of it is once you've got the get to buy brief or something similar, something you know, n- nice and clean and simple. It is all about the way that you brief it. And we never talk about that enough. We don't talk about how you brief something in because the way that you brief something in is going to create the environment on which good work is going to be, is, is, is going to be predicated. So if I, can enth- if I can enthuse you with the opportunity, if I can really get you interested in what the problem is and I can really get you excited about digging for that answer and what the potential might be if i can get you into that uh, mindset then i'm going to get better creative work as a result um if i just deliver it as a perfunctory there this is the brief this is what we need answering and this is when we need it answered and it's got everything in it you might need um actually you're not destined you're not going to really get your uh, your team on board i think that a good briefing session is as much about getting the creative team really fired up to do it as it is about getting it you know moved through the process of studio Um, and I don't I just don't think we talk about the articulation in the written word 
on the creative brief. We do not talk about how to sell that creative brief in. Um, and I think that's vital. Yeah, I agree. I also think that creatives need to be involved more in the kind of diagnosis of the original problem. That's interesting in itself, though, isn't it? Because a lot of them, a lot of them, I am one. And I, I mean, actually, many years ago when I was a junior, I would have been like, nah, I'm, not, I'm not fucking interested. Just tell me what, tell me what you want me to do. Um, and actually, it's only as I've sort of gone through the industry and, and, and got older and got experienced that I recognise uh, how, you know, I started to recognise how important it was. But, you know, even in the early days of Halo, we, I mean, I've always been into brand strategy. I mean, I did, that's what I mean, working with Stephen is when I really got into the, into the whole idea of, of strategic uh, brand positioning. Um, and he taught me basically everything that I then took forward uh, into Halo and then sort of continued learning while, while I was starting doing it. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I, I think that you, you realise when you start out, all you want to do is create beautiful looking shit. And, uh, you know, this, you want to be able to do, I'm a designer, I do this, look at this cool stuff. And it's only as you get, and actually running your own agency really helps you realise this, is uh, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how nice it is. If it doesn't work, it's just it's just pictures. It, it needs to be effective. Um, and, and we we uh, at Halo we talk about um, uh, commercial creativity, which is fundamental uh, to, to to the whole ethos of the business. Which is if it doesn't work, if it's it's missed the mark. If that's really not uh, we can we can talk about. It's a shame this creative didn't resonate. It's a shame that this route didn't make, you know didn't make sense. But you know, we and we can kind of um, apologise for it, and, and but still try to maintain its worth. But the truth is, if you create something and it is not effective, if it does not move the needle, and it has not been successful, that's not been a successful enterprise, no matter how beautiful it was. Um, you know, that's just coming back to that thing of what we actually do, and I think that's the that I wouldn't have. I think running your own agency brings that into sharp focus very quickly. I've never understood form follows function more than running my own agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it works or it doesn't work. Yeah, and if it doesn't work, you're the one who takes the phone call. You're the one who sold it in and, and did the work, took the money, and now you're going to take the phone call when it's been a failure and it hasn't been successful in for whatever reason. If it hasn't met what the client was hoping to achieve, um, and let's just assume that you did manage their expectations and, and agreed on what was a, a, you know, a viable objective. If it hasn't done what you thought it was going to do, that means it hasn't worked. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible agency and it doesn't mean that you could never work with the client again, obviously. But you should be able to hold your hands up and say that that was, that was not good. That was not great work. It didn't work. You know, I think we, we just don't, I mean, we just don't talk about that enough either, do we, as, as an industry? I think that the idea, like you were kind of hinting at it earlier, that the idea of being a designer and it's all a bit more superficial and subjective, whereas something working or not working is completely objective. And that's what we need to be making decisions on. Not I like this idea or I like this campaign. It's does it work or doesn't it work? End of. Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard. But that's the thing. That's that. This is the thing that separates us. I, I mean, in my the Z-Melt talk, when I started my Z-Melt talk this um, last week, I was talking, I was trying to sort of frame this idea of how important account management is, but I started talking about the uh, creativity and was talking about, um, you know, awards and uh, how many creative awards we have. 
Um, and, and I was t- sort of taking the piss out of it. But really what I was trying to say was we, we put so much value on the beauty. We put so much value on the creative output. So we all judge the words, the art direction, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the uh, creativity of it. And we will deem that to be a success or a failure or, you know, awarded or unawarded based on um, the subjectivity of your judging panel, but fundamentally who are judging it on these on certain criteria of which the criteria is not necessarily did it really work um, and I know that you've got kind of there's you know DBA design effectiveness awards which are ace um, but even then there's fair subjectivity to it and, and I think that actually it, this is the it, we kind of celebrate these intangible ideas of what good looks like whereas actually when you run your own agency what you realize very quickly is if something hasn't worked you need to make something that works quite quickly and you need to learn from your mistakes and you need to accept that they are mistakes and you need to look at what is going to work, what's going to be successful. Um, and we just don't do it enough. We just, we're not willing to do it enough, um, which is a shame. It's a, it's a disservice to the industry, really. Totally. You mentioned there your talk at Z. You, you spoke about the importance of account management and account managers themselves. Why did you choose to talk about this? Uh, uh, so um, at Halo, we don't have account management um, because when I was in agencies and I was working in studio, I used to think of uh, accounts as being um, set the sales team, the bag carriers. Um, you know, their job was to just get work in front of clients. It was just I had I didn't I didn't have a due respect for them. I loved working with them. They were all, everyone I worked with across all the agencies and at publishing, you know, the people in the accounts teams were lush. But I still kind of thought of myself as a creative and therefore that was better in some way, shape or form. It was kind of cooler, right? And when we started Halo and you actually start doing the job, you realise how absolutely pivotal uh, building client relationships actually are. Um, you also realise that when you're in the accounts team, um, you kind of you, you have a, this unique perspective. You understand the goals of your agency. You understand how that business needs to make money and what good looks like to the agency. Um, but you also understand the same for the client. And actually, you also understand your client on a personal level. So you understand what the political environment um, in which they work is like. You understand... Um, the sort of the pressures that they are under, what the pressures their sales teams are under, for example. Um, but you, you, you really have this sort of unique perspective. And to a certain extent, you go a little bit native. So when you really work with a client closely, you go a little bit native. And kind of you become really invested in the success of those projects. And you become invested in the success of those projects beyond the creative output. Um, you start to really see what results mean. Uh, both to the business that you're working for and the you know the the personal client that you've got, and as a creative, you just don't. And my 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 concern is that as an industry, um, so the IPA report uh, that came out in August said that we that there's this danger that we're going to lose account management um, from the industry because you know clients want to are squeezed on budget and they don't really understand um, what the role is. And, that, and it kind of made me, and I was going to be talking about um, leaving space in creative direction. Uh, but I was like, do you know what? This is a good platform. This is a good time to talk about the value that account management actually has. And, and like I say, so they have this unique perspective. They've got this real investment in the success of a project. And I think that it, can, it came to me 
this idea that when I was a creative, there, I, I recognized there's a certain amount of creatives are individualists. So although they might work in teams and, uh, you know, copyrights, art directors, teams, etc. But fundamentally, you're an individualist because um, you're trying to create something satisfying, something that you find worth in as well. Um, so you've got this kind of personal involvement with what the aesthetic is going to be. And you also have this this interest in what the work that you're creating, you know, the, the other life that it's going to have, which is in your portfolio. And therefore, you have an investment in the strength of your portfolio. And accounts don't. Accounts don't have that. They kind of win or lose on the strength and the success of the projects that they're working on. They can't, you know, drop it into Photoshop necessarily, gloss it up and stick it in their portfolio and sell it as, uh, you know, a really great, exciting piece of work. Because if it didn't work, it didn't work. So... I think that what we what we forget is that account great account management uh, is designed to make sure that the client feels comfortable, feels safe working with you. And I don't mean that in like uh, they don't want to do brave work. Um, I don't mean that at all. It means they they feel really comfortable that they will that they can entrust you to do the very best work for them. And actually, that will afford you the biggest creative freedom if you've got that. That relationship is built, that trust is built over time. And it's built with loads of micro interactions. And those micro interactions are had through the account management. Um, So you might go out at a pitch level and sell the whole creative dream. And then that pitch is over. And for you, you know, the amount of time you're going to speak to a client or see a client is going to be diminished, right? Whereas uh, accounts are going to be doing this, you know, they're going to be talking every day, three, four times a day. They're going to have multiple emails, multiple calls, multiple face-to-face when we weren't in the pandemic. And, and those micro-interactions build these really great, solid relationships as, as long as you invest in the growth of your account management team. And so anyway, we, we, I sort of see this real value in, uh, in, in what accounts brings the role. And like I say, at Halo, we call them client partners. So we don't have an account management team. We have a client partnership team. Um, and, and we talk about it in that way because unlike account management, which looks very inwardly, you know, account management sounds like it's, uh, it's just the management of that account. So it's not actually, it sounds like something the agency needs you to do. It doesn't sound like something that the client needs. Whereas actually, if you reframe it and you think of uh, your accounts team as being um, the ringmasters, in this circus that we live in, the people who are going to connect all the right people at all the right times at all the right moments. And they're going to supply strategic insights and audience insights and client insights that you wouldn't otherwise get. Um, if you if you consider how pivotal they are in it and everything else springs out from it, you see that it's not an inward-facing role at all. Actually, client partnerships describes it as an outward-facing role. It describes this idea that we are partnering with you, genuinely partnering with you, at, at a level where it's really important to us that there is success for the client. Um, it's not just success for us as an agency. And I think client partnership describes that far better. But I kind of felt that we, we have to do some work at defining what that role means. And we need to do that as an industry. And, and, and agencies themselves need to put real value on it because you can't sell to people what you don't value yourself. Um, and I and I kind of felt that yeah. So when I was doing Zmout, although I had this other talk waiting into the wings, which was uh, this sort of creative idea about how much space you leave um, and how much freedom you create, it didn't feel like it felt like in it on the back of the IPA report, 
this was a good enough time to actually it was fresh in everyone's minds to talk about this element of agency life which I think is ill dis, you know little discussed yeah I think you're right about needing to define it as well there's 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 lots of examples in our industry which are ironically ambiguous in as much as they're so easy to misunderstand and don't make any sense I mean I've, I know people outside of the industry who have assumed account management quite understandably has a finance operation yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I, think, I think yeah in articulating it as client partnerships it's certainly closer to the reality agreed I mean it, it, and even that's inexact as it were it's just it's a, it, but it is a better interpretation because when um when we talk about client partnerships it seems to always make sense uh, when we're talking to clients. They they understand this concept, and they don't. What they don't see our client partnership team as are uh, as a. They don't see them as a barrier to where the magic happens. So they don't see them to as a barrier to the studio and to therefore the creatives. Um, they see them as an integral part of what it takes to do great creative work. Um, and at no point um, are they ever undersold. So we are, you know, we we, we explain the account ma- account management fees as client partnership fees, and we explain what they're going to do. And it's certainly and and actually just by experiencing it, you know, but because our our team are very well versed in strategy, very well very well versed in planning. They come from lots of various different backgrounds. Some of them are um, from film backgrounds, for example. Um, and they have lots of different ideas and, and talents that they can bring to the table. And, and a lot of them are exceptionally creative. Um, you know, so, so it kind of feels like we are one big sort of, you know, creative machine and we sell ourselves as such. Not, uh, we, don't, we certainly don't sell this delineation between studio and account management anymore. Um, we, we haven't done that for years and years and years. I have this really weird habit of constructing Venn diagrams of stuff in my head and with account management I've always I've always pictured one circle of what the client wants to happen or wants and the other one is what the agency wants or believes should happen and that overlap bit is where account management need to kind of push everything into that overlap and it's not easy no no, no. and I think that it's underappreciated and I, and I think that again I didn't appreciate it until I started my own agency um, and I really realized, you know, very quickly, I, I, you know, you almost want to be, it's like when you're, you're, when you're an adult and you want to phone up your mum uh, and once you've had kids yourself and apologize to her for all of the shit because you <laughs> didn't realize it at the time. It's a little bit like that. You want to phone up every, um, every account manager, every account director you've worked with and go, shit, man, I am so sorry. I just had no idea how difficult it was. And I and I certainly didn't understand how important it was. And until there is none, until you don't have a great account manager, you don't really appreciate it. But that's the thing. As a creative department, um, you might go, yeah, you know, they're, they're brilliant account management. They are. But imagine if they weren't there. Imagine what would happen if they weren't around to be the the conduit. This this sort of creative endeavor. Um, it would be awful. So you kind of, yeah, so I thought, I mean, this is, I, I'm quite a big advocate. I mean, I am a big advocate of it. And I just think that it's otherwise, and if we don't change as an industry, um, it's going to be really difficult to draw the best talent, um, which, you know, and, and that is in doubt, undoubtedly what you need. You need to be exceptionally talented um, to, to, to work in client services. Um, and we need to find ways to get the best and the brightest to come. I mentioned earlier that form follows function has never been more real than when you start an agency. I think the other one 
that I've definitely realized so like the quantity of spectacular ideas is not the issue it's getting them converted into a real project or actually being able to afford the resource needed to get that over the line and there's probably a few other variables but account management or client partnerships are definitely one of those variables required oh no without a doubt i mean it, this is the thing isn't it i am behind you you could have an award shelf which is absolutely groaning and that's brilliant but it, it, that's not going to give you that's not going to be the thing which gets you creative freedom um, and sort of the, the and the ability to do you know really fine work. Um, that permission is going to be granted through the trust that the client gives to their account team. Um, the, 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 yes, you have to do great work, but uh, there is so many other variables which are involved, um, and you know account management is vital to all of those. So that and strategy, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's, but I think strategy. See, interestingly, strategies become quite cool. Over the last, you know, over the last say five years or so, it's you know it's suddenly had a bit of a resurgence, hasn't it? Um, and everyone sort of wants to be a strategist or talk about strategy, and, and suddenly it's like that's good. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that's happened because strategy is absolutely central. I mean, as a branding agency, um, we place the you know it, it's at the heart of everything, and so it's completely vital to us. And um, but it's and it, and these days we can talk about it. And people respect that. Um, I just hope that we can get to a place with account management where it, it, it too has a resurgence in uh, in celebration of what it brings. Yeah, I think so many things are kind of cyclical in as much as something new turns up and people think it answers all problems. I feel, certainly feel like we've been talking about the need for strategy for our entire 11 years. And all of a sudden, I think people have recognized the lack of it. But I think I'm now uh cynical enough to realize these things just happen and it's, it's how you navigate those that's in, that's important but it's funny isn't it because we um we have stephen king sort of wrote effectively the blueprint for what strategy is yeah the planning uh, guide his, yeah. his planning guide is fantastic yeah right so we have that and then it's like uh, then everyone's excited uh, and then forgets about it and then you know suddenly i i, I was always really entertained by the fact that um it kind of had a resurgence about, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less. Everyone's suddenly talking about these these ideas, which were effectively, it's a bit like when people quote Ogilvy. And it's like, well, actually, nothing's really changed. Um, but and actually, there was a discussion about this, maybe on LinkedIn not so long ago, and about whether actually anything new can be written. And, and you know, is it, are we just sort of, you know, constantly regurgitating these same old ideas i think it was mark pollard who was like no that's fine actually it's good it's good to rediscover these old ideas and it's good to sort of think about what they might mean now and it's really good to see if you can build on them now um it doesn't you know we shouldn't we shouldn't just go that was written we'll stick to that or that was written we'll forget about that now it's great to bring things back so he actually because i used to be sort of you could tut can't you kind of go you're just quoting stephen king mate that's been done and actually, it's like, no, that's fine. Quote him. He's brilliant. It's really good. Yeah, well, and exactly that. Funny enough, we actually had it transcribed because there's that, there's that old dodgy PDF uh, scan that, that does the rounds every now and then. But we actually had the whole thing transcribed and we've had a dozen or so or more so printed and we give one to each of our clients um, just to show what informs our thinking. And funny enough, on the topic, just bouncing back a little bit to, to brief, I don't know if you saw, but on the LinkedIn and, and the Twitters, there was a, a couple of 
I think from the 60s, an old BBH creative brief, and there was another one from JWT. And given I'm currently working remotely from home, I didn't have access to a particular briefing document. And I actually sent a, a, a live client the scan of the old BBH creative brief from the 60s and just said, well, just fill that out and send that back to me because that's all I need to know. And it was that good. And I, Absolutely it was brilliant. brilliant. But, but what's so good about it is it forces you to make those decisions and to, to give the thought that you need. And there's my particular, I mean, there's only five questions to the BBH template, but one of them is what is the single most important thing this advertising should convey? Yeah. And, and that forces the client to make that decision. And then it just makes your life so much easier. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I, I've got, I wanted to talk to you about pitching, but fortunately one of our listener questions touches on that so we can elaborate there. So I'm going to chuck a couple of those at you, Nick. Yeah, go for it. Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. We've got one from Max who says, I loved your isolated talk on pitching. What's the craziest pitch idea you've ever had and did it work? The craziest thing I've ever pitched. Oh, I'll tell you one thing I did do once, uh, and this worked, actually. So we were asked many years ago now, we were asked by, um, so Essex, I'll give you a bit of background. So the county of Essex um, is uh, fairly, was fairly famous um, for sort of boy races and, uh, and sort of, you know, people really driving their uh, Citroen Saxos at, at extreme speeds. Yeah. But actually, the truth was, they also had the highest fatalities on the road. And um, they, uh, that we were asked to pitch uh, a campaign to try to stop drivers, uh, so to try to get people to drive a bit slower, a bit more considerately. And um, so we went to them and we said, um, we wanted to get... Some of the big arteries, so like, for example, that well, I've, I've forgotten the name of the road, but it was one of the main arteries going into Chelmsford, for example. And what we said was we wanted to get key billboard sites. And uh, we wanted to have, for the first three weeks of the campaign, we wanted to have a picture of like a really slick looking car, which we were going to, th- we built in 3D, but made this sort of realistic, sort of futuristic concept car. And we just wanted to have that up, like a, like a teaser ad, like you get for an Audi commercial. And then after three weeks of people just driving past it, you know, day in, day out, five days a week, we did this thing with, um, we, we did this thing where we did a special build billboard where it looked like the car had driven off the billboard and it sort of crashed into the side of the next billboard. So we kind of created this Constantina mashed up effect where the actual billboards kind of were coming out. You know, like when you, you Constantina paper. So you kind of had this massive sort of cracks everywhere and this amazing 3D effect. And that was the craziest pitch that we, we, we pitched and won and was really effective. So it had like, uh, in terms of brand, in, in terms of recall, so of 85% of people recalled the advert, both the beginning and the, the, the one when it was on its own, just as the sexy car. Um, and, uh, and then the, the, this effect. And actually... Over the two years that we worked on the campaign, there was a significant um, increase in sort of driver safety awareness um, by all, all of the metrics they are measuring it by. And that all literally is a special build billboard in three distinct sites run over a long period of time. So it ran for about six weeks in each site, so fairly hefty. Um, but that was a really gutsy one going to effectively a local authority and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah we want to take your budget and we want to do three billboards with it in these areas. That's it. That's what we want to do. We don't want to do anything else. 
and obviously the other agencies we were going up against had you know um, probably very thoughtful well-planned you know ideas you know across multi-channels and we had three billboards which um, you know using 3d technique was going to crash into the side of another billboard and that's it but it worked really well and it was a it was a it was a good gutsy move i mean the other one and the other one that i really remember was uh so when we pitched for love honey the brief is fundamentally can we can we take uh, we want we want the the sex toy retailer to be mainstream and we said okay so we can do an ad we can eat we can do any ad basically after 11 o'clock but that's not going to shift the needle at all and um, what we should do is put all of our money into the world's most boring advert um but let's let's do it let's do it before nine o'clock and let's do it on uh, itv and channel four um and and let's let's get people talking about sex toys uh, by doing that and that and, and that was a an interesting thing simply because we had to use the line the most boring advert we can think of uh you know we, where we don't mention sex toys at all and it's just fucking not sexy at all and even then actually even then when they finally went all right we'll do the most world's most boring sex toy tv advert and they are i mean obviously those guys were amazing but the, the real joy of it was uh, was the fact that uh, when it went on, it was the damp squib that it created because it obviously created quite a furore with the likes of the Daily Mail that this was even taking place. Um, but the fact that uh, when it went live, it was this the, the world's most boring TV advert, um, but made this massive damp squib of, of a piece, but very successful in terms of and um, driving awareness and really successful at driving editorial, which was really the goal. Um, I remember the day that the, the the day after it went live uh, on the telly, they had a page three in the Telegraph. An entire page was dedicated to the fact that this advert had run, and uh, the discussion about what that would mean going forward. And actually, yeah, even the Telegraph was saying this is a good thing. We should be talking about sexual happiness as uh, part of a healthy lifestyle. We should be having these discussions. Um, and uh, and actually, that was probably. That was that. That was a really exciting time for us. I mean, we've never we we've gone on to do lots of different work, but that's one of the pieces that I we still have on our website because of how culturally significant it was at the time, um, and sort of quite risky it was at the time. But yeah, it's quite funny going into a creative pitch and going, right, guys, imagine the most boring thing that you could watch. Here we go, and uh, and yeah, <laughs> it worked. Nice. Well, again, that just—I mean—that just reiterates something that's very important. That you don't have to like the ad for it to work. No, 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 not no. And there you go. It's not all about. It's it's about trying to do it for the right reasons, and the right reasons are to be effective. Yeah. What do you think about pitching? I think there are numerous people in the industry for and against. I know you're a fan. I I think the morals behind expecting agencies to pitch are sometimes a bit dubious and cloudy but but what do you think about the whole pitch Uh, process that seems so ingrained in our game i'm not a fan i'm an addict i think that's the difference (laughs) i so so basically i i really hate the fact that uh, we get asked to creatively pitch and uh, and actually more and more halo won't simply because it's just it's it's extremely time consuming as you know um it also takes your eye away from and really developing the work that you should be developing for paying clients, and that is difficult. Um, I don't. I've never wanted to be uh, have an agency which has a pitch team, senior pitch team, junior delivery. That's not right. So I, I think it's it, you have to you know pick and choose your fights. However, what I would say 
is that you will always pitch. And, um, and the reason you will always pitch is because naturally we're all quite competitive people. Everyone wants to see if they've got the best ideas, the best strategy, and they want to see whether it's going to win. Um, and you're never going to get around. And I am definitely really bad for that. So if you think if there's if there's if there's a competition in the offing, I'm definitely up for it. That sounds fun, but it is it, the problem is it depends what the criteria that the client is picking you on, and I think that the, the the danger with the creative pitch is that no matter where no matter what anyone says, often they are picking it on that creative. And I know that Hegarty always said that that's not the case, right? So he talks about uh, that you know clients aren't picking the creative idea. They're picking the potential. They're picking what this might mean. And I, and I always like to think that that's true. But I don't know if it necessarily is because often people like shiny things. And if, they, if they're trying to buy a campaign and they like someone's campaign better than yours, they might like your thinking. They might like your style and your agency. But that, 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 that idea, look, look at that idea. That works. We'll have that one, please. And, that's, and so that's really common. But the problem is that doesn't necessarily mean it is the best work. I think that you know it's the it's the simple truth is that you're the, the people you're pitching to they're going to be subjective. You can't really make a really great assessment in an hour on whether you want to work with a group of people. And and I think it's uh, yeah it's a very dangerous thing to do. However, um, it's fucking brilliant when you win a pitch, isn't it? I mean it, it's just brilliant. You just you just feel amazing. I I mean I feel crushed if I don't win a pitch. I'm I feel absolutely crushed uh, and I'm terrible. And my wife always points out that. Uh, that I need to just let that shit go because it ha- she actually says it happens all the time, which is even worse in a way. That's, you know, oh, no, that, that, why are you worried about that? that happens all the time. And, uh, and, and actually, she's right, it does. I mean, we, we try to, I mean, we used to work at about, I don't know, we had two out of three, I reckon. We win two out of three that we creatively pitch. And that's great. But uh, you never think about the two that you've won. You always think about the one that you didn't win. And then, and then when they launch the, the, when whatever happens, the campaign that you didn't win goes live. And then you feel compelled to slag it off and spend hours critiquing it. Um, and it's just awful, isn't it? It's awful. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, creative pitching is something we can't get out of, I don't think. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's ingrained in the industry. Yeah, I think the conditions you're expected to pitch within are the, what makes it decisive for, for me and also the the transparency. And, and you can't, you get better at qualifying the the real pitch opportunities from the from the fraudulent ones, but we both know very well because we were actually invited on the same one not so long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not always the case, but let's not dwell on that. Uh, question two is from Sally. Your head's going to grow here, mate. She says, uh, so you climb, surf, mountain bike, ski, play guitar, skateboard, and uh, have recently taken up outdoor swimming. How tiring is it being that fucking cool? Oh, that's amazing. That's the nicest thing that anyone said to me. Uh, No one ever says stuff like that. Um, I'm not really cool at all. I'm really geeky. I do outdoor swimming because my wife is an amazing outdoor swimmer and she is the, she does incredible ice swimming and all sorts. Um, and so she's, and she was right actually just getting me into it. Um, it's just such a relaxing, wonderful way to get back into nature. I'm the worst rock climber in the world. Um, I have wings attached to my shoes because I fall so often. They were a gift from my climbing partner. 
I do love climbing. Climbing, climbing actually is, I think, something that we should all do because, uh, just as an aside, um, when you're climbing anything, your fight or flight mechanism is so high, is so agitated that you cannot think of anything else. So if you want to get away from problems that you may have or things that you're, you're overthinking about, climb up a big rock face. Um, because you'll be so fucking scared most of the time that you haven't got <laughs> any time to worry about it. Um, I'm, uh, and I'm so, There's real logic there. That make I entirely believe you. No, no, it, it's been, it's been. I, I would say that it's been one of the things that saved me actually, because I don't, I, I'm not, do not profess to being a great climber at all. The the friends that I climb with are all way, way better than I. However. Um, the, the detachment is quite something and actually outdoor swimming is the same because you're out in the in the open lake or, or the sea um surfing i've always been terrible at since i was the since i started at the age of 13 um but again there's but when you actually catch a wave it's one of the most euphoric experiences of your life they talk about it being spiritual and it is it's uh, i mean and, I, and i'm not even able to do all the cool stuff but yeah, I mean, and mountain biking, fucking hell, mountain biking is the same vibe, isn't it? It's just good for you. It's good to get out and get your heart going. It's good to do that. And it's, a, you know, it's an hour, isn't it? But just like go out, go around the woods, jump off stuff. Brilliant fun. And uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and I think it's important just to, it's good for you to move. It's good for you to do stuff which takes your mind away from the work. And let's face it, if you work in this industry, your brain is often full and uh, creativity wise it's i think playing guitar is really helpful it's really relaxing um it involves a lot of thought again um and once you're sort of you're, you're learning a piece your your brain is worried uh, is worried about that it's absorbed in that and so it's a proper way to disconnect if that's how i've always looked at it is looking at ways to disconnect and do something completely new at any one time i feel like i've got too many tabs in my brain open yeah yeah there you go and actually so it, yeah it's it, you've got to find but you need to find things i I always found jogging really bad for that because if you're jogging all you're doing is thinking and a lot of people find it really useful to to you know really think things through to go for a jog go for a walk and just really let it sort of pour through your brain and, and, and hopefully something great comes out the other end whereas i find that now i just need to shut off from it i need to not be thinking about that at all Maybe you just need to find a way of running that also introduces fight or flight so that you're scared to... Maybe you need to rob a bank. Run away from run. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a good idea. Run away from stuff. You're doing it wrong. No, that's what it is. Yeah, no, I could... What I, should, I should start doing is I'll go past dog walkers and like throw stuff <laughs> at their dogs and, uh, and just run away. Or smash windows. That's a good thing. Right? Maybe there's a traffic jam. Just run past, smash a window, carry on. And uh, yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. Put some jeopardy into it. There's not. That's right. There's not enough jeopardy in running, and that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Oh dear. Right. The, the the final part then, Nick, is our four pertinent poses. Um, number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? I would say um, that trip around Europe in a transit van with all of those amps is going to lead to tears. I, t- I tell you what, if I, if I really thought about it, if I, if I could go back to me before I started Halo, I think I would say um, you're going to have to grow a way thicker skin and be prepared. You're going to need to be prepared to be rejected 
in a way that you've uh, you've not experienced before. Because um, when I was working for other people and uh, as part of studio, what what you really find is that you know success or failure, you just it's a shame you feel bad. Um, but actually, when you're running the agency and you're face to face with clients. Um, often you, you face rejection of ideas, rejection of costs, rejection of uh, work at all. Um, you've got to get you've got to get used to dealing with rejection, and you have to grow a thicker skin and actually be willing to move on. You've got to you, if if you if you don't win the pitch, you're going to just have to pick yourself up and do the next one, and it's going to keep going. It's going to be cyclical. You are going to have to keep one foot in front of the other, and uh, and I think I, I wish I'd. I would love to go back and explain what's going to happen because I spent a lot of time agonizing over when things didn't go right or how things could have gone better. Um, and these days I'm kind of like, ah, that's okay. I got to learn from it. Great. But I still need to keep going forward. And I, I got to let that pain go and just keep going. Yeah. I like that a lot. We, I am, um, I often talk about failure and just being prepared to fail more in life in general, albeit not catastrophically i i had the pleasure of speaking to charlie russell who is an incredible comedian she's been on she was on the bbc goes wrong shows that's where most people uh, would have become familiar with her over christmas she's ace and she she made a similar point but she said it's all about becoming familiar with the feeling of failure so that it doesn't affect you so much as soon as you're familiar with it it do, and, and therefore it doesn't affect you, you can almost achieve anything because that's the one thing that holds people back. Yeah, no, that's, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah, I'd, I, I'd like to say that instead. <laughs> I'll cut her in, mate. We'll just edit her if in. you wouldn't mind, that'd be yeah. great, yeah. Uh, if you, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? <laughs> that's an interesting question because, so the easiest thing is you could go, right, I'd like to ban Simon Sinek from the industry or Gary V, and uh, I don't want to do that. I, I think they have value actually for, for different reasons, but um, I think you need all of that in an industry. I would like to banish, do you know what? There is nothing I'd like to banish apart from, I would like to banish art directors who pixel push instead of big idea. So um, I like, I, I, I mean, there's always a time for a bit of pixel pushing. You know, could you move that a bit more? Can I just see that a little bit? Can you make that a little bit bigger? That's all fine. That's the sort of fine tuning. Um, but I really, really, really hate it when I meet senior designers or art directors or creative directors who believe that creative direction is pixel, is pixel pushing, is being prescriptive about how a designer or a creative answers that brief. And then basically, go, you know, they show them the work and then they basically move everything around to the point where the, the, you know, the originator of that look and feel doesn't even recognise what they've got anymore. And it's kind of like, well, what, have you just got a Mac monkey there? What are you talking about? What, just, you know, or here, here's an idea. Do it your fucking self. If you know, you know you're, you're bringing nothing to the party. I'm bringing nothing to the party if all I'm doing is, doing, is putting the boxes where you want them. Um, and that's nonsense. And there's a bit of that, yeah, towards the end of work, absolutely, I get that. And I enjoy that part of it and that the fine tuning um, is right. But again, even in the fine tuning stage, it, it, it should be, um, you know, between creative director and the design team. Um, it's still, and it's, it, I think even up to the point where you press print, it's still a negotiation about just everyone working together to get it right. Um, rather than everyone working together to make sure that the creative director fucks off and leaves them alone. 
yeah, I really hate that. Uh, and there's a, isn't there a brilliant, there used to be a brilliant Tumblr called Hovering Art Directors. I don't know if it still exists, but it's awesome. It's basically just loads of photographs, surreptitious photographs taken at studios where they've got like three art directors stood around desks and people pointing. And it's like, you, you horrible dicks. I hate you. My team are probably going to be, they'll listen to this and they'll just go, what? Shut up. You do it all the time. Yeah, I do I not. I do <laughs> not. And, I, and you know I don't. If you're listening, you know I don't. <laughs> I'm cut that bit out. Yeah, no, don't, don't, don't. Leave that in. You know I don't. Amazing. Um, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? So isn't, that's interesting, isn't it? Marketing books or learning books. I mean, right, the, the, so I always say, um, I say to everyone now, if you're right at the very beginning, um, then you can do no wrong by reading How Brands Grow. I think everyone should probably give that a go. I think that uh, so one of the books, and this is actually a Twitter thing, um, but I read um, Farris's book, uh, Paid Attention. I don't know if you've read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I fucking love Paid Attention. I think it's, I mean, I, it's one of my all-time fave books, right, in, in this space. Um, and actually, um, when I got back, when I, I, I was on Twitter for at the very beginning and then I just left it all alone. But a few years ago, I got back on Twitter. And um, as an experiment, I followed Farris because I loved the book so much and, uh, and discovered the joy of Twitter that these people who you really rate and really respect, they, might, they, they sometimes talk back and, and they share ideas. And they're like, and you could be, I was having conversations about 90s rave with Farris. I'm like, this is literally the dream. Um, but I can't recommend that highly enough, actually. I think it's a fabulous book. Although some people, I think of it as a more of a philosophy book than I do of an industry book, to be honest. But it's, um, it's really beautifully written and very interesting. And uh, obviously, you can't not uh, talk about delusions of grandeur, I don't think. Not with you on the, on the line. But I tell you what, without um, blowing any sunshine up anyone's ass, A, it is beautifully, beautifully designed and, and brilliantly written. Um, but what it is, is genuinely, we really needed that book. The problem with the industry was the navel-gazing bullshit, which kind of pervades it. Um, and I just think Delusions of Grandeur was just, uh, it, it came out at exactly the right time. It's super funny. Um, it's funny because it's true. And it takes target at everything about it. But I tell you what, if you've, it, 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 I found it quite cleansing to read it. Because it's so knowing. It's such an in-joke. I mean, loads of in-joke stuff, um, which the industry desperately needs to see and, and, and read. So, yeah. But, the, but actually, I tend to not read loads of marketing books. I mean, I'm read, having said that, I'm currently reading um, uh, Mark Pollard's uh, Strategy is Your Words, which, is, which I'm delighted with. And he's a fantastic writer. But I, I tend to love reading fiction. And um, I'm currently working my way through David Mitchell's collection of works, oh, okay. which I'm really into. Are they good? Are they good? I'm really into David Mitchell. Oh, wonderful! I've read, I read, so I read Cloud Atlas, which everyone sort of seems to start with, which is wonderful. Um, but um, I, I read The Bone Clocks and I read Slade House, and uh, Slade House I just think is one of the finest books I've ever read. It's only short, um, but it's just absolutely wonderful. And he just paints these incredible. It paints these incredible worlds, which are really interesting and uh, compelling and terrifying. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've got, uh, I can't, I cannot, look at me, I'm a fanboy. I can't recommend enough. And I can't recommend Neil Gaiman enough. I think um, Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman is hands down the, my favorite book of all time. 
and I, I've, I've read that uh, I've read that to myself at least three times. I've read it to my children. Um, I, I just absolutely adore it. I think it's one of the most fantastic fairy tales of, of uh, modern times. Perfect. Amazing. Well, we'll link to all of those. Lastly, we always dedicate every episode to someone, Nick, and we bestow that honour um, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? See, I've got two, I reckon. But, uh, well, there's loads. I thought about this because um, I knew you would ask. And th- there is so many people uh, that I, I would want to talk about. I mean, ju- just, the, just the people that I've met on Twitter, which is my by far and away favourite platform, and all of the amazing people there. Um, but I suppose there's, there's, there's a guy called um, Mikhail Rankin, and his Twitter handle is I am Novinov. But he also does the, he also, he's the presenter of You Are Dope. Um, and actually, if you check out You Are Dope on Twitter or go on LinkedIn, he just did a recent episode with Cindy Gallup, which is just awesome. He's a creator. He's a musician. Um, he's just this thrilling guy who's just got fingers in lots of pies and loads of ideas and is just an absolute breath of creative fresh air. And I cannot recommend enough to follow him just because, uh, yeah, I, I, I've only started following him in the last year and just amazed by what he's been doing and what he's up to. And from, from, from my point of view as an in, in the industry, we tend to sort of follow people who are strategists or people who are creatives or art directors. And, you know, in my little world of Twitter, he's all of those things is what I'd say. But, and, and, and also a, just a beautiful soul. So I'd like to dedicate it to him. That's a, that's a great dedication. I thought you were going to reel off loads of names there. So you, you, did, you did well. I oh, know I was going. I mean, there's loads, isn't there? Because there's just so many nice people who are all brilliant and, and really, uh, you know, what a wonderful community. I'm, I'm talk- when I'm talking about I'm talking about Twitter, my Twitter community that I'm in is just a glorious place to be, um, full of sharp, funny, interesting, super bright people who are just really sharing and kind. So... You know, I could, I'd like to thank, there you go, thank Twitter as well. Yeah. You, you know who you are. You know who you are, <laughs> lovely. Okay, mate, well, um, as, a, as a final call to action, then everyone can head over to this listing. We'll share all of the books discussed, links to Halo, links to, is your Z Talk live now? If it isn't. Yeah, on, yeah, 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 it is, it is. Yeah. Um, how else can, can people get more Nick Ellis? Um, well, obviously, uh, just hit me up on Twitter. So at Nick Halo one is my Twitter handle. Um, and I, that's where I tend to be. I do, I do the odd bits on LinkedIn. By all means, we can link in. Um, but I, I just love the, I find one platform uh, is perfect for all of this. Um, I mean, there's, and I think that's the best place. Come and see me there. And, uh, and that, let's, let's hang out there. Amazing. Nice one. Thank you, mate, for joining us. I've loved it. Oh, thank you. What a joy. I've been very, very excited about doing this. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, and finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. Check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Do action.
try, and I try, and I try, and I try. Yeah!